How about if I just start at the beginning? <laughs> you could you could be honest. Because <laughs> you know what? They have the sweat equity that went into that memory that they're making with their friends and family. And that's what's important with us, and that's what the I Am Real World's about. Well, that's a great question. You know, one of the best things about a spring food plot is you get a second chance if it fails. Chasing Giants with Don Higgins. Brought to you by buyafarm.com, your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. By tapping into Don's years of experience, dedication, and commitment, Chasing Giants focuses on the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Now, here is Don and co-host Terry Peer. Well, welcome everybody to episode 23. It's June 14th. Terry Peer and Don Higgins here. Welcome, Don. Hey, Terry. How's it going? Really, really good. You've had a busy couple weeks. You just released your new YouTube channel, and I think you're getting a lot of hits on that with some new videos that you have about some uh, uh, kind of fad topics out there. How's the reception been on that new channel? Oh, good. We got a lot of comments on it and uh, more new uh, subscribers every day. So, uh, got some pretty, I've been saving my good video ideas for later after we get more subscribers. So, yeah. Anybody that's listening that's been watching, uh, please subscribe and get your buddies to subscribe because I'm saving the good stuff till we get a lot of people uh, following along. Well, I think it's but, all good uh, stuff because I get in there and see, you know, social media, especially these uh, forums, these, you know, all these different page groups that people belong to and and the social media experts that get on there. Um, you know, there's just some crazy stuff out there. And one of the one of the things that we've talked about over the years is this idea of a dough factory that somebody came up with. And, uh, you know, that was one of the first videos you put out there. Yeah, it's it's actually the one that's got the most views so far. And Steve Shields, who's doing the videos for this, uh, did a fantastic job with that video and actually with all of them. So uh, if you are listening and you ever wondered about dough factories or heard that term, you may want to check out that video. So uh, for the people who don't know, Steve Shields, real good friend of both Don and I. Um, he lives here in Cincinnati. He does... Um, a lot of work for us for real world, but um, also probably one of the best in the business with a video camera and doing editing. Uh, a lot of 3D graphics went into that one. Um, so not only are you getting the uh, kind of tried and true, um, you know, techniques and stuff that, that Don uses, but it's also very high quality production and Steve does a great job for us. Yes, he does. And he's actually... Uh Coming my way again this week, we got a shoot that we're going to do um, in northern Indiana with one of our real-world distributors, and this one's going to involve a helicopter. So uh, it's hard telling what we're going to end up with as far as video footage and, uh, and production videos out of that, but uh, I'm sure you folks will see it later um, as they come out. Yeah, so um, you know, on the YouTube channel, your your focus here is going to be not only kind of some of the misconceptions that you see with um, information that gets put out there, but you're also going to 
um, be talking about, I know you're doing a trail camera test right now. And then as we get into the hunting season, you're going to do a little bit more on your rut report with actual footage of bucks that you pass, uh, successful hunts that you have and giving everybody an update about what you've seen in the woods, right? Yeah. The rut report that I've been doing on my Facebook page has just become very popular. Uh, getting, I don't know, several thousand hits every day. Um, and I'm going to take that to another level. I'm going to do a weekly hunt report. The rut report has been daily, but once a week, I'm going to do a hunt report for the week. And I'm going to show uh, video footage of bucks that I've passed. And I'm also going to use this YouTube channel to uh, film my or to show the, the video of my hunts. So if I have a successful hunt where I kill a buck, uh, there will be a video uh, produced about that buck and that hunt. And it'll be shown on that YouTube channel. Uh, it's just, you know, outdoor TV has kind of ran its course, if you will, at least in my opinion. And uh, everybody's going to, you know, either YouTube channels or what is it, Carbon TV. And mm-hmm. there, there's some different outlets. And, you know, I just couldn't find a what I thought was the right fit uh, for my hunts. And finally, I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to start my own YouTube channel, and it'll be more than hunts. There'll be a lot of shorter videos with hunting tips and land management advice, and I've got some seminars on there. And, and we're actually uh, hosting the podcast there, so we can you can actually yeah. even uh, listen to the podcast, and if uh, the situation arises that Don and I are together, you know, we might even set up the video camera and, and film the podcast and put it up there. So um, yep. Higgins Outdoors, uh, subscribe to it and click that little bell icon so you get notifications when Don puts a, um, a video out there. He and Steve are working hard to bring constant contact or um, content to everybody here coming up for the uh, 2020 season and I want to tell everybody that there is some big storylines in the works and we've been hinting around on this for a couple months now but you're all going to see some really incredible footage this year and and some great stories as they unfold so I mentioned it a little bit ago but you're you're in the middle of a trail camera test here tell us a little bit about what's going on there yeah, I've been looking at a lot of different brands of, of trail cameras, uh, trying to find uh, the best fit for different applications. So, you know, as I've not made any secret here the last year or so, I, I want to kill a booner on public ground. But um, yeah, I don't want to take just any camera into public. I don't want to take a high-dollar camera to public ground and get it stolen. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to, to find a camera for that application, but also – um, the best camera for using on my own property, you know, where it's, I can leave it out there and know it's safe. And I just want one that's dependable. That's going to catch every deer that comes by and, uh, get a quality picture even at night where I can, I can, you know, tell what, what deer it is. I mean, too many cameras, you know, every camera has got, got its fans out there, but you know, a lot of cameras, the guys don't even know what they're missing because they've never compared it to anything else. It, it takes pictures. It takes good pictures clear pictures and i think this is great but you know that camera might have missed 75 percent of the deer that came by right so i've been testing them side by side and, and a couple have really stood out uh, amongst the others so far right 
And and we don't want to draw a conclusion yet because there's a lot of different factors that you're going to take into this test, not just a you know one card pool. Um, I know I right. ran I know I ran the uh, a test of the the Browning Strike Force and Reconics last year. Um, for the simple fact, you know, everybody thinks that just free stuff gets handed to you and I, and that's not the case. I mean, we we both like a Reconics camera, but doggone it, they're so daggone expensive that you know as many cameras as we run it's hard to have 50 of those things right so um you know that that's part of the thing and then also you know putting a 400 hundred dollar camera out where who knows is you know somebody else is going to be walking by it and these little battery operated uh zip saws and you know like the milwaukee and makita stuff even if you have the cable locks on it they can get through those really quickly if they have a a uh one of those little tools so um yep a lot of reasons for the test um but um you know it's uh the 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 biggest thing is you know we're we're going to wait and draw conclusions a little bit later versus just a you know initial middle of the summer dry conditions you know we haven't gotten in the cold yet so there's a lot of things that we want to look for in this test right and I, I want people to know that i have never had a trail camera sponsor I have paid for every camera that I'm testing. Um, I, I'm really not looking for a trail camera sponsor because uh, I, I don't want to jump to conclusions. Once I've used a camera for a couple of years and I know it's the real deal, then I will narrow things down. But th- this testing is not, I'm not going to have any conclusions even this fall. I'm, I'm going to use them through hunting season and probably two seasons before I start saying, hey, here's the camera that that I prefer. Um, I, I've made it no secret in the past, uh, that I like Reconics, but they've proven to me that their customer service is, is not up to par. They, they might have great cameras. They do have great cameras, but their customer service is lacking so much that, uh, I, I'm just about done with them. So I pretty much am done with them. So I'm looking for a replacement just to be brutally honest. And, you know, so far, there's a couple of cameras that have really kind of stood out to me. One cell camera and, and then just one regular camera. And, and I'll go ahead and mention those, but I, I don't want this to sound like I'm endorsing these. This isn't your conclusion yet. This is just kind of a play-by-play of what you've seen so far, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, you I may be on here in 60 days touting another camera. And, and the ones I'm telling you right now in time may prove to be junk but right now there's there's a couple that are really standing out to me in these side-by-side comparisons and the browning strike force pro hd um is seems to be a fantastic camera um you know non-cellular um it, it's stacking up excellent compared to everything that's hung next to and as far as cell cameras the exodus render cell camera is probably well it, it is it flat out is the best cell camera i've ever used to this point um and we've used it, pretty much all of them pictures. we we've used pretty much a lot of them over the years and still haven't found one that we're confident in yet so it's it's nice to hear that uh the guys at exodus might be onto something here that might work so we we hope that that works because that's that's a tool that both of us enjoy and utilize um, but so far we, we haven't had the, the confidence in, um, 
in anything that's been on the market. Right. And, you know, the Exodus non-cell camera, the lift they call it, I, I just got to say there is a tremendous difference between the lift and this render cell cam. This cell cam is fantastic. It's very easy to set up. Um, you just uh, get on the Scout Tech website and register that camera, and it probably takes you five minutes, and you got that camera working, maybe 10 minutes, and, and that camera is, is ready to go to the woods and send pictures to your camera. I had it on a little clover plot on my place the other day, and I was mowing that clover plot, and so I was getting ready to drive by that camera, and I had I took my cell phone out of my pocket and I put it there in my in one hand as I was mowing past that camera, and I wanted to see how long it took to send a picture of me driving by to my phone. And I'm telling you, in less than ten seconds of me driving past that camera, my phone was buzzing. There's the picture. Good deal. And uh, it was so sensitive. It's got three different sensitivity settings. I had it on the highest, and the highest was just way too high. Um, it was picking up, you know, a limb blowing and things like that. I turned it down to medium, and it seems to be working really well now. Uh, I may have to even turn it down to low, but so far it's been actually doing pretty good at the medium setting. So I got a, I got high hopes for that, and so I'm going to give it another 30 days. And if it stays, if my opinion don't change in 30 days, I'm going to buy a couple buy more. A couple more. Well, yeah. like like you said, this is not an endorsement of a camera. We're still buying these cameras. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not like, uh, somebody's pushing this on us. We are normal guys that have to pay for cameras and we're looking for the best fit for, you know, what we need out of them. And, uh, we've talked about it on the podcast before, uh, we're not as concerned about daylight pictures when we're doing our inventory. We just want pictures. So, Nighttime quality for you and I, we've talked about this before, nighttime quality is probably one of the most important things for us. Getting the picture and then nighttime quality. Exactly. And I'm glad you stressed that, Terry, that we're not. When I started this test and posted it, I I bet I had at least four different trail camera companies offer to send me free cameras. And every one of them I, I refused. I said, I'll buy them for now. Right. If the point comes that I'm looking for a sponsorship from a trail camera company, it's got to be a company I believe in. I'm not just going to take it because it's free. So, uh, and I, I don't see me taking free cameras for a while yet. I, yeah. I, I need to be confident first. And, and the customer service thing, just you and I kind of have a little bit higher expectation with companies that we work with on this. And, um, you know, it has to be a good organization and good people behind the product. And, you know, we're, we're in the hunting industry with our business at real world. And we know the time and effort that it takes. And let me, let me say patience it takes, um, because we know a lot of people that are diving into land management projects and, um, food plots, native grasses, it's their first go around. And it's, it's really starting from the beginning and coaching these guys. It is enormous amount of time that we spend to take care of our customers. So, uh, I guess we're just a little extra sensitive because of what we do every day about what we demand out of the products that we're buying too. And you're probably right, Terry, but there, there is no excuse for a company to ignore a dozen emails from someone 
and, and I absolutely know for certain they are getting those emails. Yeah. Um, with real world, we, we try to answer every single email and there may be one or two that have fallen through the cracks over the years. But if you send us two emails, there's no way two emails are falling through the cracks. Yeah, we're, we're putting um, Johnny on the spot. I know that um, the software that they have when you buy a camera when um, on their Conex website, I was having trouble uh, getting it to run on a Microsoft Surface. Uh, so it runs off of a tablet operating system and was having trouble even getting it to, to work. And I never got a response email back from their customer service on, on anything. So I felt the pain too. Um, great cameras, but again, there's the customer service side that, that we, you know, we don't want to bash anybody, but it's a concern of doing business with somebody because that's a huge investment, right? Yep. I mean, you're, you're talking about a camera that's, that the price point is, well over double anything else on the market. So, I mean, you pay for that, you want to get the support back out of it. And uh, But I've used the Brownings for quite a few years. I gave you one of them a year or two ago. Um, th- that is not mm-hmm. the one that you're testing right now um, in the side-by-side. You're using their newest generation camera, so it's apples and apples with everybody. But, um, you know, like I said, everybody's got a flavor. We're just looking for that, you know, best one for the situation that we need and um, we're not going to be bought <laughs> quite plain right. and simple mm-hmm. so how's the uh, so, uh, go ahead i'm sorry yeah i just wanted to reiterate what you were saying terry that, uh, that this is going to be ongoing don't look for any conclusions i've got a lot of, of messages from people in the last two weeks asking you know what i found because they want to buy new trail cameras and I can just tell you that you, if you're looking to me for an answer, you're not going to get it this season. Yeah. So uh, I gave you a couple of of options here earlier on this uh, podcast of, of two that are standing out to me, but you know, don't take that as the as the final answer because the, con- the testing continues. Well, I can tell you that um, you know I have used the Browning Strike Force even in the 16 and the 18 gig uh, or the excuse me, the megapixel. Um, the two things that I really like about those cameras is they're a six battery camera. I think some of them might be eight, but the ones that I use are, are six. Battery life is phenomenal in them. And for me, well, I guess for you too, because you don't check trail cameras a lot. But for me, when I go take trail cameras into Illinois, it'll be a month and a half before I go back and take them. So I need a huge SD card because I want that nighttime quality. Um, you know, we're not in Illinois. We're not able to run, you know, trail cameras on feed or mineral like we are here in Kentucky. But I love the um, the uh, the nighttime pictures are good, but I love the battery life in that camera. And I will mm-hmm. tell you that if you're shopping for a camera right now, this is no endorsement. I'm just saying this is a deal on a camera that I personally have used, and it's it's good. I can't say that it's better than – you know, other ones on the market. But if you watch like Bass Pro and Cabela's, usually the last generation or the previous year generation strike force cameras, you can usually find those things for like a hundred to a hundred and nine dollars uh with free shipping from Cabela's or Bass Pro. And I saw today that the sixteen gig strike force pro um is actually on sale um at Browning's website um, so check that out. Somebody shared it on Facebook as a deal and asked me if I'd used it. And 
I have personally used that camera. I have probably about 35 of them. So um, just if you're looking for a deal or I don't know if we have any wives or kids looking for a Father's Day present, that might be a good uh, good uh, investment for you. At 100 bucks, you really can't go wrong. There you go, for sure. So not a paid, not a paid, I'm buying a bunch of them. not a paid endorsement, but, uh, but, uh, just a deal if somebody's looking for one. So, uh, we got that, um, we got that YouTube channel going on. You got your trail camera. I want to stop and just talk about, uh, spraying food plots right now. And I hope our listeners, you know, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I want to just, we're going to be putting a lot of stuff on social media in the coming weeks about being very careful about the, Roundup or glyphosate product that you're picking. I had another guy email us in. He burned his corn, and I said, "Take a picture of the product that you gave me." And sure enough, it was a different version of Roundup that had a residual herbicide in it. So you know, um, I want you to go in just a real quick, Don, and and talk about how um, you know some of these chemicals that you buy in the lawn and garden aisle might say Roundup on it, but they have other chemicals in there that'll actually hurt your plot. We get it every year, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, these newer food plot people don't have the experience, and they they bought these, uh, our Generation 2 uh, real-world glyphosate-tolerant soybeans, and uh, they go and they, they buy Roundup, which... Roundup is the trade name for glyphosate. It's a a brand name. It's a brand name. The chemical is glyphosate, but the brand name who the, I think the original company that patented it was Roundup. Now there's other companies that can sell it. Yeah. Well, Monsanto had the patent. Right. They, they, they branded it. um, Roundup. Right. Same thing as glyphosate, but, What's happening is there's a lot of weeds that are becoming resistant to glyphosate or, or in like the, the case Terry just mentioned, uh, a residual herbicide has been added. So, and what that's for is, you know, a farmer goes out in, in, in the spring and his field's got a crop of weeds coming on. He'll spray that Roundup with the residual herbicide in it before he ever plants anything. And it kills everything, but it also leaves a residual herbicide in the soil that helps prevent future weeds well that residual herbicide can actually kill soybeans so you spray it on soybeans um you know and it kills them even though they are glyphosate tolerant and there's just other chemicals that have been mixed in with some of these products and you want to make sure that you're using a a chemical where the only active ingredient is glyphosate right if there's anything else on that label then don't use it. It'll kill just, your beans. It's just like reading the seed tag on on our product. We try to educate people. Look at the – it's usually right on the front, a lot of times on the bottom right or bottom left-hand corner, it'll say active ingredients, and it'll have a line of herbicide that says glyphosate and then something that says other ingredients. If there is another chemical spelled out before it says other ingredients, do not use it. And, you know, I, I tell people to stay away from that lawn and garden aisle and tractor supply or rural king because that stuff that you get that's made to spray on your driveway crack or on your, uh, on your gravel outside of your, uh, outside of your shed, that stuff's, number one, it's not economical, um, you can get a whole lot better deal, but most of the time that version of Roundup is going to have a second chemical in it. 
So go back to the ag aisle where like the sprayers and fittings and you'll find uh, usually, what is it, two and a half gallon jugs of, uh, of straight glyphosate. Um, a lot of times, what is, what is, what is it normally? They sell it in like a 41% concentrate. Yeah. Most of it says 41% glyphosate and then it'll be 59% other ingredient. That other ingredient is just a carrier right? for that glyphosate. But you're going to save a ton of money by buying that than you are these little quart jugs and mixing it and then, you know, make sure you know what you're getting. So I right. wanted, I wanted to touch on that. We're going to have a lot of stuff on, um, uh, might be, be a topic for your YouTube channel if you go and spray and you're all filming it that you need to mention mm-hmm. but on the real world side. We're going to really focus on it again within an hour of getting on this podcast. I was trading pictures with, with a, a guy that he uh, had roundup ready corn and sprayed it with a lawn and garden roundup product and ended up, you know, now all of his corn's yellow. I don't know if it's going to come out of it or not. So um, be really careful. And, uh, as you're going through your plots, um, my soybeans, we've been really dry since I got them in, uh, they're getting up about six inches tall right now. So I'm going to wait till mm-hmm. they get up about eight to 10 inches tall and then, and then spray mine. So I'm, I'm a couple of weeks away, but I don't think we're supposed to get rain here for about the next four or five days. I actually sprayed mine this past week. Uh, they were about six inches tall, but I had some, some little pigweed coming on. And you uh, get that, that early. Pigweed, yep, that it, it can get resistant. If you let it get up a foot tall, you've got a problem trying to get it killed. And this stuff was like four, four to six inches tall, and I didn't want to take a chance on letting it get any taller, right. so I hammered it. And, that's that's uh, a great this afternoon. That's a great point about you know people get and say one rule of thumb for everybody. If it's if it's just grass coming up, I'll wait till they get up about eight to ten inches tall to spray. But that pigweed, yep. uh, you're right. If that thing gets gets really hardy and big, you're going to have a hard time killing it. So go ahead and, you know, once that plant gets established and it's up out of the ground, you're not going to hurt it. You're just trying to prevent having to spray it a second time if you spray it early. Yep. The only the only disadvantage is you might have to spray it a second time before that bean canopy fills in and, and uh, you know, weeds can't get the sunlight underneath. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of questions too about the rate of glyphosate because um, a lot of food plotters they don't have calibrated equipment. They've just got an ATV sprayer and they're right. out there spraying their plot. And you don't want to mix this stuff weak. You're way better to mix it strong. These soybeans that are glyphosate tolerant, you could pour straight glyphosate right out of the jug on them and you're not going to kill them. Yep. But if you use a weak mixture and you spray a weed, there's certain weeds in particular like uh, pigweed, uh, water hemp, mare's tail, you give those weeds a light dose and you're not going to kill it. You might make it a little bit sick, but then what's going to happen is that plant becomes resistant to glyphosate and it produces uh, thousands and thousands of seeds and all those plants are resistant to glyphosate and you're never going to kill it with glyphosate. Always go heavy. Exactly. I tell people if you can, if you don't have calibrated equipment, use five ounces of glyphosate per gallon of water, and that's a strong mixture. And if you get good coverage with that, you should kill most of your weeds. And then, and then again, make sure you spread the broad leaves when they're small. Yeah. You know, if you can get them before they're over six inches, you'll be a whole lot better off. Yeah. So, so make sure. Uh, Let's shift gears here a little bit. 
right. You had an accident since our last podcast, and your legs all bound up in a brace. And you want to tell us what happened? Well, I was probably doing something I shouldn't have, but you know, we 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 do that sometimes. I was uh, we were seeding a soybean plot, and uh, I was trying to get some video footage of uh, the beans coming out the broadcaster. And so I was riding safely on the tractor and uh, was standing up um, right in behind the seat of a Ford 4000, so small tractor, and uh, um, got done what I was doing after we made a pass. And uh, my buddy that was driving, I said, all right, let me off. And it was just one of those things that happens really, really fast. And, you know, working around equipment, we all have heard stories about people getting hurt and and um, the tractor just shifted just a little bit as I was switching hands, holding on to the roll cage, and I started to lose my balance, and I was worried about stepping down on or falling down on that back tire as it was rolling. So, uh, you know, I was only five feet in the air. So I, I, I wish I could say that I was smart enough that I had all of it planned as far as trying to be safer. Uh just instinct as soon as I started to lose my balance I just jumped out over the tire to get away from the tractor um, so I didn't fall on that back tire and I landed in about eight inches of soft powdered dirt and blew my right knee out so I have a torn ACL MCL LCL uh, both meniscus are torn two fractures in my tibia and a ruptured quad and calf muscle so I think the only thing going for me is my kneecap has a PCL attached to it, so my kneecap's in the right spot. So I got that going for me. Everything. Well, you got surgery coming up too, right? Yeah, I have to heal a little bit before they'll do my surgery. So um, uh, we 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 got into the surgeon. I, I have my daughter actually had ACL reconstruction here recently, and um, she got it last year. She's she's just now fully recovered. So I got into the doctor that I wanted to get into. He saw me immediately. We got the MRI, but once they and and trust me, I was already talking to him about delaying surgery till December because I knew I'd torn something in my knee. You know, I knew at least I had a meniscus problem. Um, it swelled up the size of my head. For those of you who follow me on social media, you see my leg look like a basketball. So I knew it was bad. Um, but when he, uh, when he did a, uh, zoom call with me to go over the MRI results, um, it, it was really bad. So, um, I have to heal, uh, because of the muscle ruptures and fractures. I, if I got cut on today, I couldn't go through normal rehab. So, um, it looks like we're going to wait probably till after July 4th. I'm in therapy now. I have two choices. I have to wear a post-op brace, which um, I think there's a picture posted of me yesterday with some softball players of mine. It goes uh, from basically my hip to my ankle. Um, I'm allowed to walk in it. Um, I can bend my bend my knee a little bit with it. Um, I'm allowed to walk as long as I have that brace on. If I don't have that brace on, even to get up and go to the bathroom, I'm supposed to be crutches, non-weight-bearing. So it is, uh, it's going to be a long month getting to surgery, but we're already starting to plot everything out. Um, you know, my biggest, my biggest concern, number one, was taking care of my obligations with the kids that I volunteer and work with. Uh, but deer hunting was 
<laughs> right behind it. And we started looking at the timeline. Um, if if I get surgery in early July, which is what we're going to try to do, we'll have that scheduled probably here in the, within the next week or so. I'm going to be on crutches for about four to six weeks, which is going to take me right to opening day of the Kentucky archery season. Now, luckily, where I killed that six-and-a-half-year-old, I have that, that, that whole food plot is ready. It's in. Even if I'm on crutches, I can get to that spot which I think I'll be off crutches by then. So, um, and then uh, I'll actually be jogging in therapy by the end of September. Uh, but I'll be in a brace all of deer season. Um, but, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Um, with all the crap going on in the world, the the first thing I want to do is thank, I mean, I've had people from out of state, even, even beyond you and Wes. I know you and Wes have, have offered multiple times to come help me the good people that are in our lives that have that have offered to come help do whatever needs to be done around the farm or around the house, I, I want to thank them because it means a lot that, that people care and uh, people are looking out for me and my family. But, you know, is is I got a really bad deal getting ready to happen, and it would be really easy for me to, um, I guess, change my objective or change my goal for what this year. My goal is still to shoot – a mature target buck. Um, I'm going to find a way to do that. And if I don't do that, that's fine. But I'm not going to settle and lower my expectations or my goals of this year just because I'm hurt. Um, I'm still going to archery hunt. Um, I'll still gun hunt. But I'm not going to just use this as an excuse to settle and, and not try to achieve the same goal that I started out the beginning of the year with with all of my projects. Well, that's admirable that you would take that approach. And, but like I told you, we're going to get you a buck. <laughs> a good buck. And, uh, yeah, Don, Don <laughs> go ahead. I told Terry that if need be, I'm going to fix something on the front of my skid loader <laughs> where I can pick him up. If he can't climb into a blind, I can pick him up and set him up into a blind. <laughs> and I meant it too, because, uh, he may have to sit there all day, but well, that's all right. I'll put him in before daylight and uh, whatever supplies he needs to make it till dark, um, we're going to get you a good buck. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it means a lot that people are wanting to help. But the but the bottom line is, is um, you know, every year there's obstacles, whether it's trespassers, whether it's coon hunters, whether it's family arguments where, you know, people are coming in, health problems. Um, I'm not going to let whatever adversity that, uh, happens to me, uh, with this leg, um, change what, what I want to get out of hunting. And, um, you know, it's, it's just at a, a point in my life and a point in my hunting career where, um, you have to be okay not killing anything versus settling for something the last day because you couldn't be disciplined enough to do it. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I've accidentally shot the wrong deer before, and I'm not saying that'll never happen again, but I'm going to go into this season with as, just as much optimism. Um, I can tell you that as long as I can bend my leg, um, the, the partnership we have with quiet cat will probably be one of the biggest blessings that I have as long as I can bend my leg, because I've already been thinking about it. A couple of the hunting spots that I have, you know, because you don't, that thing has, I got the uh, new direct drive one. 
that thing has enough torque in it that I don't even have to pedal on it. Um, with just the electric shift, I can throw my leg over and take off and ride without even rotating the pedals on it. So, um, you know, that might be a really big blessing for us or for me um, in a couple of the places that I hunt, just getting to the areas that I need to get to. Um, I don't know that uh, our buddies uh, Jeff and, and Frank at Lone Wolf, I, I don't know how much I'll be in a lock on this year. Um, I think climbing up a set of uh, tree sticks and getting in a, um, getting in a lock on is probably going to be tough. Um, I'm going to probably be blind hunting and, and probably ladder stands at best, but, um, but that's okay. Um, we're still gonna, we're still gonna make it happen somehow. Yep, for sure. So, so I'll just, keep uh, this will be an interesting storyline to follow along because uh, I'm sure about every podcast, we're going to be getting updates from Terry and his medical condition. And, uh, then when hunting season rolls around. I'm sure he's going to have some pretty unique stories to tell. Yeah, my my first priority is obviously to my family and making sure they're taken care of. And um, you guys that listen know know that I spend a lot of time volunteering with kids. Um, I have to get them through a, a little bit more. Of, they just got out of this COVID thing and haven't been able to do anything outside for all spring. So I'm going to do my best to to meet the obligations that I have with these little kids. And then uh, I'm gonna rehab, rehab, and more rehab through the rest of the summer. So stay tuned, and I'll I'll uh, give updates on the pain that these uh, physical therapists put me through. You know, Terry, I just came up with a great idea. Uh oh, <laughs> I can take I can take my skid loader and put the forks on it. Yeah, and, and we can hang one of them love swings off of them forks. <laughs> <laughs> I can saddle, just take you out saddle hunting, the woods. saddle hunting. <laughs> Josh Kiter, Josh Kiter, my cousin. If you're listening to this, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great idea. I'll just park that skid loader there at the edge of the woods with the forks way up in the air, and you can just hang there from your love swing. <laughs> I might even put a video camera on that and pick you up at dark. That'll be one of your. Uh, that'll be one of your cell camera tests. Is because. <laughs> Because there is no way sitting in a love swing, which for those of you who don't know, that's what we call saddle hunting. Uh, I'm going to be able to sit still enough, so you'll you'll be getting that trigger as I'm moving around and flinching, hanging from that that strap, hanging from it. <laughs> yeah, you could carry me anywhere around on the farm. That's well, mobile. folks. I promise you this: if if this happens, I will take pictures and post it on social media. <laughs> All right, I, I'm done talking about me in a love swing. So uh, let's move on to the buyfarm.com property of the week. Buyafarm.com is your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. Now, here is Don Higgins with this week's featured property. All right, this week's featured property is actually an online auction. It's active right now, and it'll be going on until uh, Thursday, July 9th at 8 p.m. But this online auction is for 40 wooded acres in Fayette County, Illinois. It's located between the towns of Vandalia and Coffeen, uh, just off of Illinois Route 185. Uh, the entire 40 acres is wooded. Uh, for the most part, there is a pond and a cabin. or It's a mobile home that's been used for a cabin and a storage building. 
a little bit of open area around that pond and such. Uh, this would be a great building site, you know, for a new home or a uh, weekend getaway place. Uh, the, the pond is actually pretty nice. There's a lot of, of photos and such of this property on the Biofarm website. Um, I'm guessing this place can be bought for a pretty good deal. Um, and it's, if you're in the St. Louis area, it's probably not much more than about an hour um, from St. Louis, right down Interstate 70. Um, but uh, like I said, the, the bidding closes on July 9th. Uh, it, Wayne Keller is the agent that's got this uh, listing. You can call Wayne at 618-407-1679, and he'd be glad to show it to you. There is going to be a uh, property inspection uh, Saturday, June 27th, from uh, 1 to 4 p.m. I think that's in two weeks. Um, so if you're free that day, you could uh, you could show up and, and look the property over. However, if, if that date and time doesn't just give Wayne a call, and I'm sure he could uh, make something work. Um, the taxes are very low. It's only $525 uh, annual property tax on the place. And uh, you, you can see all these photos on the Bio Farm website. You can see uh, you know, plenty of deer sign. I'm sure there's turkeys there too. Um, but I, I just got to guess that uh, this property is not going to bring a high dollar. So it'd be a good opportunity for a starter property for someone. Um, it's already got a it's got a pond where you can fish, and it's got that uh, trailer or mobile home uh, that, that appear to be in decent shape in the photos that uh, you could use for the time being and maybe later build a cabin or a, or a, even a new home there. So, again, if you're interested, give Wayne Keller a call at 618-407-1679. And, and don't, don't always worry about the smaller tracts of property. You know, we talk about a uh, mature buck wanting, you know, minimal human intrusion. You don't need to have thousands and thousands of acres for there to be a giant, you know, uh, able to hunt one there. So, and you have know, 40 acres in, in some of the cases that you and I hunt, 40 acres is a big track. It is. It's, it's more about, uh, how a property is managed and the, the size of it. So don't let, don't let 40 acres deter you. Please go to buyfarm.com for this or other properties that they have listed. They have properties listed all over the, the state of Illinois and other states also. So our partners at Biofarm have been very, very good to us. And uh, please visit the website, biofarm.com, or uh, give the, the agent for this particular property, Wayne Keller, a call. So um, check it out online. Um, before we move on to our uh, questions this week, um, you got a um, kind of a pretty cool present delivered yesterday, didn't you, from one of our listeners? Yeah, I did. A uh, Trump hard hat and mug. So a listener, um, a listener of ours, Todd Covey, um, he, yep. he actually gave that to me a while back, but um, I hadn't seen you. And one of our friends uh, was up in Illinois working on our food plots on a property that I hunt, and you went over and met up with him and helped him since I couldn't get there. And you got to lay your eyes on it for the first time yesterday. Yeah, I did. That's pretty neat, and uh, I want to thank Todd for that. And uh, you know, we've just got all kinds of feedback from our listeners. Not only submitted questions, but a lot of people that haven't even submitted questions take the time to, uh, you know, send us a message, uh, whether it be through a text or an email or maybe a private message on social media. And we just uh, really appreciate all our listeners. 
and uh, all your support. So, but yeah, uh, Todd, Todd got us both a, uh, a Trump gift. So, uh, he, he knows what, uh, <laughs> he knows us very well. Let's just put it that way. So very cool how he had a, that's, that's an actual, um, that's a real hard hat that he sent you. And it's been, uh, I guess yep. they call that uh hydro dipping, but it's got like this mural on it. Maybe you can uh, take a picture and put it on, uh, your Higgins outdoors, Facebook or, uh, uh, Instagram page so everybody can see it. It's, it's, it's really, really neat. So we appreciate Todd. Yeah, doing, I'll do that. We appreciate Todd doing that for us. So let's move into our questions for this week. What do we got? All right. The first question comes from Joe Barker from Johnstown, Ohio. Um, Joe says we recently bought 50 acres and built a house last year in ag land with low deer density. I took a year to evaluate the property and have determined I'm lacking quality cover. I have 20 acres split between two row crop fields and 30 acres of woodlots that run along alongside to the west. The woodlots have open timber and swampland, which is currently getting a TSI cut. I would like to create more habitat to hold deer since the majority of the surrounding acres are row crop fields. I'd like to take the 20 acres out of crop production for this. Would you suggest I convert a portion of the ag field to switchgrass, or should I allow it to revert old field with a high stem count of regrowth to hold more deer? I have heard of deer not using switchgrass fields when established and wonder how I can avoid this if going that route. Thanks. I'm going to start with the last sentence first. Um, <laughs> I knew you were going straight there. <laughs> I have heard of deer not using switchgrass fields when established and wonder how I can avoid this if going that route. Joe, I'm not sure who started that, that idea, but I can tell you it is absolutely false. In fact, whenever I hold my whitetail master course on my home farm, um, I've got a, a fairly large uh, switchgrass field. It's probably about 15 acres. Um, this grass is it's, it's uh, monoculture, just switchgrass. It's tall. It's thick. It stands all winter. And you can't see a deer three feet from you if there was one standing there. And I invite the attendees at these classes to walk into that switchgrass because it is nothing but a crisscross of trails and deer beds absolutely everywhere. You can see this field on the video of my my hunt for Smokey. If you go to my new um, YouTube channel, Higgins Outdoors, and look for the video of my, my hunt for Smokey, and Smokey steps out of this grass. And, and you can see as he steps out just how thick that grass is. I mean, at first when he's walking through there and we're up in an elevated blind, you can just barely see his antler tips in that grass. Whoever came up with the idea that deer don't use a monoculture of thick, and I mean thick, switchgrass, is totally off base. And uh, I, I got the proof right here on my own farm. The biggest bucks on my property every year use this grass. Terry's seen it. In fact, Terry's shot bucks that have come out of it. So uh, that, that's just totally false. Let's start with that. Well, before, um, next, before, we before, you, before you go on, you, you, if deer aren't in there, it's not because of the switchgrass. 
<laughs> Let me just clarify that. If somebody had a situation where they're in, not in a thick stand of switchgrass like what you're talking about, it's not because of the switchgrass. I mean, poor we, we shed hunted that one field that you're talking about, and poor Wes Delks' wife got lost in it. We 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 were exactly. we were fanned out, and she had to start yelling, and we had to go over to her because she didn't know which direction to go to get out. So uh-huh. so yeah, don't 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 believe all that hype. If the deer aren't in there, there's another reason for it. And that's a good point, Terry. That uh, you know that somebody might have a switchgrass field that's not being used, but it's not because of the switchgrass. There's there's another factor in there somewhere. Exactly. All right. Next next point on the question here. Uh, let's see. Would you suggest I convert a portion of the ag field to switchgrass, or should I allow it to revert to old field with a high stem count to regrowth to hold more deer? Well, first of all, um, Joe, you want to make sure that you've got enough food on that property to uh, you know, feed the deer that are going to be there. I don't believe you need to pull 20 acres of food, but you might need to set aside you know, somewhere between 5 and 10 acres would be my guess. Um, to you want enough food there to keep those deer through the entire winter into spring. So when spring hits, you want your food plots to almost be picked bare, but just a little bit left. And you need to figure out how much acreage that's going to take. And, and I'm guessing the property you describe is very similar to my place. So I'm going to just guess your 50-acre property is going to take somewhere between 5 and 10 acres and probably closer to 10 once you get uh, a good herd of deer established that, that are wintering there. So you don't want to put it all into cover. Um, personally, if it was me, I would sign it up for a CRP program to get some income out of it. Right. And uh, you can either sign it up for a, a grass planting, use warm season native grasses, of which switchgrass is one, or you can uh, even enroll it in a tree program and plant it into trees. Now, the switchgrass is going to provide faster cover. If you plant switchgrass within two years, you should have deer bedding in it. Um, in three years, you should have a well-established uh, switchgrass field. Trees, you're looking a lot uh, farther down the line. Um, you're, you're probably looking at at least 10 years before it becomes a, a good piece of bedding cover. Um, the advantage there with the trees is... Uh, you know, you're not going to have to maintain it by burning like you will the switchgrass. Um, in really cold weather, I, I think they like that wooded cover um, a little bit better, uh, depending on the on the kind of trees. Now, you're, you're going to want to include some oak species that hold their leaves in the winter. If you can add some conifers to the mix, then that's great as well. And and I think the reason they prefer it in, in the wintertime is that overhead cover. If uh, you got, you know, 15, 15 feet tall oak trees that still have old, all their leaves on, the, the deer can get underneath that, that tree, or that, if it's a conifer, they can get underneath the branches, and uh, they're out of the wind, and, and they're just covered a little better. Although, you know, they, they do like that switchgrass, too, even in those kind of conditions, but I just think they like that that thick tree cover a little bit better so i don't think you can really go wrong either way uh switch grass or trees but uh you definitely do not want to forget about food that's what's going to create a huntable pattern on your property with that 20 acres of tillable ground you can situate your food plots in such a way 
and lay out the cover in such a way that you can make those deer killable, whatever deer you great got point. staying on your place. That's so, a great point because if you put it in switchgrass, you're going to need a fire break and use yep. your fire breaks as food source um, in areas that you can entrance and exit without, without bumping deer, have them all in the right transition point, um, the right wind directions, have it laid out. Um, if, if, if Joe, if, if you do me a favor, go to Don's new webs or new YouTube channel, uh, Higgins outdoors on YouTube. He had a video on there that he just posted this week called the weakest link. And I think it really goes in parallel with what your question is, because don't look at it as here's my 50 acres and I have to put a plan based on my 50 acres. Uh, that video that Don just put out this week actually zooms out on a topographical map and you look at what the surrounding areas need. Because uh, if you don't have deer there now, you have to make your property different in order for those deer to come there and stay there. And that's not a thing that happens overnight. That's a constant, I mean, look at Don's place. When when you first did your first projects, when you started buying up the chunks from the of that farm, there weren't many deer there, but now you have more deer on your property than the entire township. So, right. so you have to, you have to zoom out and know what goes on around you, put that plan together. Don't just focus on uh, your 50 acres there, but I encourage you, Joe, go to Don's uh, YouTube channel and look at a video called the weakest link and it'll, it'll uh, go right in line with what you're talking about right now. But great question. Yeah. Good input, Terry. Uh, so let's move on to the next question. Uh, the next one comes from Peyton Reetgraff. I hope I said your name right, Peyton. Uh, Peyton is from Peru, Illinois. Uh, he says, hey, guys, my question is in regards to the fall planting season. Other than going off the bag, what are some signs we should be looking for as far as the perfect time to plant, broadcast our seed? Also, would you guys recommend having a few different food plot options on one property or just pick one or two food plot types. Thanks. Um, Peyton, right off the bat, I'm going to share a uh, kind of a general idea that we share um, with that real world in regards to planting fall food plots. So Interstate 70 runs through the heart of the Midwest. Interstate 70 uh, hits Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis, Indiana, um, right on across to St. Louis, Missouri, then to Kansas City. If your property is located fairly close to uh, Interstate 70, then you're gonna, your planting date for fall food plots is going to be ideal will be around September 1st. And you can go a week either direction, but right around September 1st. For every 100 miles you go north of 70, you want to move that planting date up a week. So if you're, say, 200 miles north of Interstate 70, that you're going to want to plant about mid-August instead of September 1st. And if you're 600 miles, then you're going to even want to be in, into July planting your fall plots. And then if you're south of Interstate 70, um, you're going to be wanting to look at sometime in September. You know, right around September 1 at 70, uh, the farther south you go. And I'm not an expert in that region, so I'm not going to argue with anybody if, if they found an ideal planting time but you can generally use about the same uh, formula but not quite because you get 600 miles south you don't want to wait until the middle of October to be planting right um, 
So th- th- those are just general rules for fall planning. Uh, do you have anything to add on those planning dates, Terry? Well, I'll give you I'll give you a quick reasoning or logic behind why Don just answered that. Basically, we want those fall plots to be in about fifty to sixty days before the first major frost. So if you talk to one of the seed specialist guys like Dwayne Hopkins at Real World that is more of the science behind all the seed, he's looking at, you know, when does that plant um, mature based on, you know, the weather and, and get established before temperatures drop and then what happens after the frost based on a Australian winter pea versus a soybean and all that. But but that's that's the method to the madness. The, the biggest thing for me being in Kentucky, I'm fighting this battle of an – opening weekend uh, archery season of early September and not planting my food plots too early that they're going to mature too fast and I don't have them late season. But, um, and this will lead into the second part of his question. The beauty of a deadly dozen food plot is there's 12 varieties. I tell people this, I'm not exaggerating, 15 times a day. You don't have to have foot-tall plants in there for opening weekend of your archery season. So everybody thinks that they have to have their food plot established before hunting season. You know, when I say established, you know, 10 to 12-inch tall plants. With, With a product like Deadly Dozen, all of those plants aren't palatable at the same time. So those deer aren't coming in there and mowing it off anyway. They're coming in and picking and choosing certain plants that are palatable at different times so i don't care even if even if i have a september first weekend of september opening day i'm okay planning middle of august to third week of august here in september the biggest thing that i'm looking for fighting in august is forecasted rain i'm going to have my food plot ready sprayed tilled and i'm waiting for that forecast to show good rain the worst thing you can do as a fall food plotter is put that seed in and you get one of these little just pop-up showers that comes and gets enough moisture for that seed to crack and start the germination process. And then you turn to baking hot August weather for three weeks or two weeks and that seed has cracked. If you put it down and you don't get any moisture, you got to just have patience till you get water. But make sure, I always say, here's a rule of thumb, but your biggest thing is Mother Nature and plant around forecasted rain. And if that means third week of August or if that means first week of September, no big deal. As long as you get that planted and it germinates, those deer will come in on a plot like Deadly Dozen and pick and choose the types. And usually it's going to be the Australian winter peas that they hit first and, and still have attraction to that food plot as you're hunting opening weekend. Forecasted rain is my biggest thing on fall plots. That's great, great advice, Terry. Um, moving on to the, the second part of the question, uh, you guys recommend having a few different food plot options on one property or pick one or two food plot types. I definitely, I, I always preach um, diversity, food plot diversity, greens and grain, if you've got the, the space. Um you know, I like to have soybeans there to provide my grain throughout the entire winter. Then I like to have a mixture of greens. I want legumes, which is clover or alfalfa, uh, and they're perennials. And then I also want those annuals. The, the deadly dozen mix Terry just mentioned is my favorite. It's got your cereal grains um, like rye, uh, oats, wheat, but it's also got your brassica 
plants as well, the turnips, radish, sugar beets, uh, rape, kale, things like that. So uh, the more diverse that they, you can provide or the more diversity in your food plots, the better, in my opinion. Beautiful. That pretty much wraps that one up, doesn't it, Terry? Yeah, you got more so. to add? No, I think I think you're right. We'll 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 okay. start getting in as we get closer to uh, fall plants, food plot season. We'll start giving some tips about how you can do different things with your fall plants. But um, as far as timing, that that rule of Interstate seventy is spot on. And then also watch your weather. Float float that date based on forecasted rain. That's that's your biggest goal because we all know how dry and hot the month of August can be for much of the much of the Midwest. Right. All right. Yep, we're moving on. Um, the next question comes from Taylor. We're, I'm not sure I can pronounce this last name. Uh, you want to take a stab at that, Terry? Uh, just spell it. R-E-N-A-U-D-E-T-T-E. Yep. Really? Taylor's from Swanton, Vermont. Sorry we can't um, pronounce your last name, Taylor. Yep, I, I didn't want to offend you, so uh, that uh, – Spelling it out was probably Swanton, the best Vermont. Did you do a land consulting up in Vermont? Did you go that far? I was in, uh, oh, where was I? I was in Connecticut. Connecticut. Uh, I was in New Hampshire. Okay. And I was in Massachusetts. All right. I wasn't far from Vermont. No. I actually talked to a landowner from Vermont uh, while I was in Connecticut. And okay. uh, he, he was going to have me come up, but I just didn't have time on that trip uh, to make it. So. Anyway, Taylor's question is, when out-of-state hunting the early season, what are your tactics for locating and targeting a mature buck in a short amount of time? Thanks. The reason that I picked this question is uh, just to show that I, I don't have the answer for everything. <laughs> um, I do not do much out-of-state hunting, and when I do, it's not during the early season typically. Right. Uh, I don't believe that anybody without prior knowledge of an area can consistently go in and locate and kill mature bucks in a short amount of time as Taylor's asking about here. Um, it just early season bucks do not move very far. You, you've got to know where they're, where they're at, where they're bedding and where they're feeding. Um, because I mean, that's what they're doing. They're moving from their beds to their food and, and they're not get, typically not going very far between them you gotta there's not much room for error there it's not like during the rut where bucks are covering miles a day you got to be right on top of them and there's just not a good way on a short trip to move into an area and find and kill a mature buck and terry i'll let you uh chime in there as well well i, I do more out-of-state hunting than you do um yep no doubt about it and there there's just no way of doing it without going and I'm assuming that Taylor is from Vermont talking about coming to the Midwest and that's even tougher because of the distance, you know, um, me coming to Illinois, uh, the, the closest farm in Illinois that I, that I hunt is three hours. The farthest one is four and a half hours. I mean, we can even do day trips to pull, uh, cards, um, we do hunt some early season, evenings only when we're out of state because of we're so close. If we have the right wind and can come up, um, uh, if you go back and listen to some of the podcasts when we first started the show, I, I even drove up there to hunt 
a cornfield and it ended up getting picked between when I left and when I got there. So, um, but without having prior year's knowledge, prior scouting, having food plots or trail cameras, there's just no way. I assure you that getting a saddle hunting technique and moving in and bouncing around from tree to tree on the property is not the answer either. Um, but when we go in and hunt out of state for the majority of the property, if I'm not hunting on Don, um, the other properties, we've hunted that on and off since 1996. So the year after year, you, you know where the deer's bedding at. Um, you might not know a specific deer. You might see something you haven't seen on trail camera, but you, you have a experience and an understanding of that property. Um, just it's, it's, I don't think if, if there is somebody that that's trying to sell you on some foolproof technique, um, I, I think it's uh, I think it's a little bit of a gimmick. That's a tough task for early season patterning. Yeah, and on that uh, uh, final thought there, Terry, I would even say if someone claims that they have the answer to your question, Taylor, ask them to see some pictures of bucks that they've killed on out-of-state hunts in the early season were on a property that they'd not been to before. If they're doing it, and uh, nobody's doing it consistently, I'll promise you that, but if somebody is doing it more than once, um, it's to a property they've been to before. And you, it, you just it, don't show up in a strange it, area and start shooting bugs. In big ag country, the deer are so dispersed in the big ag fields and then, you know, when the corn gets cut, everything shifts. I mean, even even your property, Don, your property changes when the crops are in and out. We had a really wet fall last year, and and you could even tell that there was a difference in, in the deer moving around in the areas just because there was corn in the ground so late. So yep. uh, I just, it, it's a tough task, and, and I give a lot of credit to the guys that invest the time and money to travel long distances to come to the Midwest and hunt. Um, you know, I can, I'm, I'm in Northern Kentucky. I'm 45 minutes from Ohio, um, 30 minutes from Indiana, and I can be in Eastern Illinois in three hours. I'm in an unbelievable area where I can hunt out of state, very good places, uh, really close to home. And everybody's not in that, in that boat. So it's a, it's a tough task that you're asking, but, um, you know, go easy and, and don't push those deer is the only advice I can have. Work your way in. Don't go in yep. there and just bust them out of there the first time. All right. We're going to move on to the final question. This one comes from Zach Schrock from Newville, Pennsylvania. And we've been all over the map today, Terry. We're in Pennsylvania, Vermont, Illinois, and Ohio. I'm glad to hear that or see that we got listeners from all over the country. Um, Zach says, Hey, Don and Terry, thanks for all the info on the podcast. We have a 40 acre property. I have a food and water source, but there is little bedding because of honeysuckle. How important is bedding to the chances of harvesting a nice buck? Is it best to have bedding like switchgrass or bedding with smaller trees? Thanks and God bless Zach. Well, Zach, uh, bedding cover is extremely important for harvesting a nice buck. Um, when I'm on a consulting job with a client, one of the first things I tell that client is to consistently kill mature bucks. You need to be hunting them on the properties where they spend their daylight hours, where they bed. 
And if you are just one property off from where he's bedding, your chances of killing him are 10% what they are if you're on the same property. And as far as the bedding cover, um, you ask, is it best to have bedding like switchgrass or bedding with smaller trees? The key is not the, the kind of cover. More than anything, the key is freedom of human intrusion. Um, and whatever that cover is, I mean, thick cover is great. Uh, don't get me wrong. What I've seen on my own property is that some individual bucks will prefer to bed in the grass field, the tall switchgrass fields. And other individual bucks will prefer to bed in a wooded cover. Uh, but that doesn't mean that either buck is, or either type of buck is not going to bed in the other, because they will. They'll bed in both. But it's that freedom of human intrusion more than anything. It's extremely important to get the bucks that you're trying to target to bed on the property where you're hunting. Absolutely. You got anything to add there, Terry? Well, I think, I think uh, Zach... Also, I recommend watching that weakest link video because you're 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 focusing with your question, and 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 I know the intent. It's it's hard to get the intent of your question in two sentences that you submit online. Don't start at your forty acre property. Back out and look at that surrounding area. Um, there's a there's one of the target bucks that's on my property here in Kentucky this year that is at least six and a half years old. We call him we call him T two. I cannot, for the life of me, figure out where he's bedding. And I've ran as many as 16, 17 trail cameras on 30 acres trying to figure out which direction he comes from based on the wind. I just know he comes on and feeds on me every night. But until I find a way to figure out where he's bedding at, I don't have a very good chance of killing that buck um, because he's not getting there until the middle of the night. So look at what the surrounding properties are, then make your decision on where to set up your bedding. Um, strategically putting your bedding is just as important as where you're putting your food because you want to get that buck up off of his, out of his bed, going to his food where you can have a shot at killing him in daylight hours. That's the secret sauce. Great advice. Well, that wraps up our uh, listener-submitted questions. But, Terry, i got to tell you something. I just came up with another brilliant idea that I think you're going to love. Am I in a love swing again? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. But, you know, I'm a handicap now. Can, Why are you picking on me? Okay, if let's I hear I climb it. up in a tree, listen, this is a great idea, really. I can climb up in a tree, and I can hang some pulleys up there, and I can string some rope up. And then on the side of that tree, I can lag bolt, you know, one of them cranks like it's on the front of a boat trailer. And uh, I can have a hook on the end of that rope, and I can hook it to your love swing, and I can put you up there at any height you want to be. And, you know, I can have a bunch of these set up on my place, and I can crank you up in that I'm love swing. I'm surprised you're just not going to pull your pull me up on the winch on your, on your four-wheeler or something. <laughs> well, I could do that too, but. Listen, I could grab your foot if I leave you low enough, and I, and I could swing you back and forth, and you could be like Tarzan. <laughs> Maybe we ought to patent this love swing idea. I mean, I, I swear there's a bunch of guys that were, you know, young in the 80s like me that probably got love swings in their closet. Yeah, I don't know. They're going to be they're going to be breaking them things out. And... Uh, I I, th I think I'll pass. I don't I don't know that I can stay real still with a three-hour wedgie from me trying to be in a in some kind of harness hanging from a tree <laughs> i'm telling you all all these 
what do they call them? Saddle guys. All these saddle guys are going to hate us. <laughs> oh, well. It's all in good fun, guys. If you're having fun and you're successful, whatever you're doing, More we're power. all for it. I just, yeah. I'm, I'm too old and too fat to even try it. So if, if, if you're young and brave enough to try it, more power to you. But if you're my cousin, Josh Kiter, and still doing it, I'm still going to make fun of you just because we're family and I know I can get away with it. But, <laughs> but just, uh, all in good fun guys. It's, it's just, uh, it, it's, um, enjoy the sport for what you're trying to get out of it. And if, if, if that's your, if that's your thing, have at it. And we just, we want everybody to enjoy the sport, but, uh, we're still gonna we're still gonna have a little fun along the way. Absolutely. And I'm done. So I guess that's I think much I think you need up, to focus huh? on some other inventions, though, Don. We need to we need to figure <laughs> something else out without a six foot one, two hundred and fifty pound dude hanging in a in a saddle. <laughs> well, I just want to get you up there long enough so I can take one picture. <laughs> one picture of Terry and the Love Swing. That's all I need. <laughs> <laughs> all right well why don't you take us out and thank our sponsors thanks for listening make sure you go and like uh higgins outdoors new youtube channel two videos that we talked about today are going to help everybody out a whole lot and then also follow us on instagram and facebook but we appreciate you guys stopping in and listening to episode 23 thanks for listening everybody be sure to uh support our sponsors buyafarm.com 360 hunting blind Quiet Cat, Real World Wildlife Products, Vortex Optics, Lone Wolf Tree Stands, and Matthews Archery. See you next time.